0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for December 5th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. Are Medicare auditors similar to ancient hunting parties roaming the tundra for wild game? Are audits applied equally and randomly across all health care providers? Or is there intelligent design directed by a hidden network of influencers? Rack Monitor investigative reporter Edward Roach has today's lead story. We'll also hear from health care attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Kate Brantley, health care attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Tiffany Ferguson. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Box.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning, as we usually do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions.
2: Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Today is another multi-topic segment for me. But first, an announcement. Next week, I will be naming the 2022 Hirsch's Heroes. So be sure to tune in. Now, I've discussed many times the controversial FDA approval of Adjihelm, the Alzheimer's drug, and the correct decision by CMS to only cover the medication in clinical trials. Well, last week, cl- excuse me, trial results were released for another drug in the same class, which is seeking FDA accelerated approval. And as with Adjihelm, there was significant improvement in amyloid plaque in the brain, But the clinical improvement, while statistically significant, was not clinically significant, with a difference of 0.45 on an 18-point scale. Now, will more time show that there's more clinical improvement? We can all hope so, but it's really too early to say that. Of note is that two patients who received the medication died from brain hemorrhage. It'll be interesting to see how the FDA and CMS handled this drug. Speaking of accelerated approval, as a reminder, this is an FDA program for important drugs to be provisionally approved while awaiting definitive studies. Well, last week, a drug approved under accelerated approval was withdrawn from the market. The drug Sopamylon is used in the treatment of burns. Now, a drug withdrawal is not unusual, but this case is. The drug was approved under accelerated approval in 1998. And now, 24 years later, the drug company determined they cannot afford the trial required to get full approval. Yep, for 24 years, the FDA allowed an unproven medication to be used. Gotta wonder about the system that allows this to happen. Now, last week, also saw the publication of a study looking at the effectiveness of spinal cord stimulators for chronic pain. In this trial, every patient was treated with the standard of care, getting a trial period of spinal cord stimulation with before the actual implantation, and every one of those patients had benefits, so they had the device implanted. But then the stimulators were programmed either to give the correct spinal cord stimulation or stimulation at a frequency that can best be described as placebo, and the pain relief experienced by both groups appeared to be equal. Of course, this is not a definitive study to say these devices don't really work, but it should lead to careful analysis to determine if the devices truly add benefit. Now, some of you may have heard that the mayor of New York City is directing police and healthcare workers to hospitalize mentally ill patients who are unhoused involuntarily, even if they don't pose a risk to themselves or others. Now, of course, this has huge legal, ethical, and financial implications, but I won't address those, but rather point out that I doubt any hospital in New York City or anywhere in the country has the capacity and the resources to care for such patients. Now, is this a welcome first step by government to address the issue of the unhoused that was simply not thought out? Time will tell. Finally, if you're on LinkedIn, read my article or my post from last week about United Healthcare's inpatient policy. The policy is wild, and I am brutal about it. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Solutions, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole.
3: Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. I hope everyone had a fantastic Thanksgiving and are now moving toward the Christmas holiday. As I discussed last week, CMS and its contracted auditors are turning their watchdog eyes toward nursing homes, critical access hospitals, and acute care hospitals. You can hear more on this topic on Thursday, December 8th at 1.30 when I present the RAC Monitor webinar, Warning for Acute Care Hospitals, you are a target for overpayment audits. So October, 2022, OIG published a new audit project entitled Potentially Preventable Hospitalizations of Medicare-eligible skilled nursing facility residents. OIG identified nursing facilities with high rates of Medicaid resident transfers to hospitals for urinary tract infections, or UTIs. The OIG describes UTIs as being often preventable and treatable in the nursing facility setting without requiring hospitalization. And a 2019 OIG audit found that nursing facilities often did not provide UTI detection and prevention services in accordance with resident care plans, thereby increasing the chances for infection and hospitalization. In addition to UTIs, OIG noted that previous CMS studies found that five other conditions were related to 78% of the resident transfer to hospitals pneumonia congestive heart failure, UTIs, dehydration, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease slash asthma. OIG added that sepsis is considered a preventable condition when the underlying cause of sepsis is preventable. OIG's little project involved a review of Medicare and Medicaid claims related to inpatient hospitalizations of nursing home residents with any of those six conditions noted above. The audit will focus on whether the nursing homes being audited provide services to residents in accordance with the residents' care plans and related professional standards, or whether the nursing homes caused preventable inpatient admissions due to noncompliance with health care plans. What can you do to, pre- to prepare for these upcoming audits? Review your facility's policies, procedures, and practices germane to the identification of the six conditions OIG flag as preventable. Ensure that your policies and procedures lay out definitive steps to prevent or try to prevent these afflictions. Educate and train your staff about detection, prevention, treatment, and care planning related to these six conditions. Collect and analyze data of trends of frequency and cause of inpatient hospitalizations and determine whether these inpatient hospitalizations could have been prevented and how. In summary, be prepared for audits of inpatient hospitalizations with explanations of attempted prevention. You can't not prevent all afflictions, but you can have policies in place to try. As always, it's the thought that counts. As long as, as it's written down. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Nicole. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Kate Brantley, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and Rack Monitor and Investigative Reporter Head Roach. He's standing by in New York to report our lead story. It is Monday. It's December the 5th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand
0: by. The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference for 2023 is in Orlando, Florida, April 17th through the 19th at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel. The event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management, clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, and C-suite leaders with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is truly one of a kind and has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Speakers include outstanding thought leaders from the profession, as well as nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click on the ad on the RAC Monitor homepage, or go to ACPadvisors.org to register.
1: Here now with the Modern Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning, what
4: could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's being so excited about the good news about CMS releasing a new FAQ about the delayed implementation uh, of the requirement that GFEs include information from co-providers that you miss the downside. So the good news is that the delay is indefinite, pending further rulemaking. You can find a link to the FAQ in a message that Cheyenne is sending out. So they worded things in a way that may seem a bit confusing, but the nuance seems important. So the FAQ explains that HHS is extending enforcement discretion pending future rulemaking for situations in which a GFE, a good faith estimate, for uninsured or self-pay individuals do not include the expected charges from co-providers or co-facilities. In plain English, I think it's pretty clear that they're saying you don't need to include charges from a co-provider on January 1st, as we originally expected. However, the precise wording, mentioning that they won't penalize you when a GFE fails to include information from a co-provider, raises the question of whether they would exercise discretionary authority if you opt to include the co-provider's fee information, but the information proves to be inaccurate. It may seem like that if you don't need to include the information at all, it would be weird for the government to attack you for including more than was required. But there's definitely an argument that including misleading information is worse than having no information at all. In other words, if you don't have 100% confidence that you've got a solid system in place for including the co-provider's pricing information, the smart play may be to omit the information for now until it is required. They're offering leniency if you can't get the information to patients, but it isn't clear that they're promising you a pass if you get the information wrong. Now, it's easy to forget, or at least it's easy for me to forget, that states are actually the primary enforcer of the No Surprises Act, with the Fed stepping in only when the states fail to do so. That leaves us with this rather alarming sentence at the end of the bulletin. This is a quote, HHS, Health and Human Services, encourages states that are primary enforcers of these requirements to take a similar approach and will not consider a state to be failing to substantially enforce these requirements if it takes such an approach while HHS, HHS is exercising enforcement discretion. The obvious implication is that the federal government believes that if they wanted to, states could disregard the FAQ and still choose to penalize organizations uh, that don't include information from co-providers. Hopefully, states won't, but that's a caution to consider. Now, we haven't heard much about state enforcement of the No Surprises Act, but it's important to keep in the back of your mind that that's a possibility. So, bringing this home, we all thought that January 1st, you were going to need to include Information from co-providers when you gave a patient a good-faith estimate, that is suspended indefinitely. Now, as I read the FAQ, sea smoke was pouring off of Lake Superior. May the evaporating water be a metaphor for the evaporation of stress that meeting that deadline on January 1st was causing folks. I know people were really worried about the antitrust implications of sharing pricing information. Maybe we'll talk about that in the segment next year. So, Chuck, when you give someone information, it's hard to go all Richard Marks and say that it don't mean nothing. No victim, no crime. So given the new guidance, I would seriously consider holding off on working co-providers into your GFE until you're really confident that you're ready to sign on the dotted line.
2: No, it don't mean nothing
1: till you it on the line. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glaser. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. Tiffany, what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health?
5: Good morning, everyone. So today, let's talk about avoidable days and discharge delays that occur with our patients and how they can be meaningful to impact patient care and social determinants. Just for reference, avoidable days are tracked or logged delays in the patient's progression of care and or discharge that have led to resource consumption without medical necessity. These days are often categorized by reason and attribution. For instance, the patient with a discharge order stayed overnight because they did not have a ride home. The reason is transportation, but the attribution may be nursing because they did not phone a friend or figure it out. Or the patient who waited two days for the consultant to provide services and advise on the care that the patient needed. The reason may be cardiology delay and the attribution is Dr. X of blank cardiology group. Or maybe it's the social admission where it was determined that the entire stay should be tracked as avoidable. Whatever the reason, the goal for tracking these days is not to project them as meaningless trend lines with the goal to artificially decrease them. This would just result in people stop reporting the reasons. Avoidable day reasons and details should be customized and unique to your own hospital and or local community. The only reason this information is tracked is so that the hospital and our health system, likely through the case management department, can do something with the information and impact change. If you do not know your hospital's internal costs, we can estimate that according to Kaiser Family Foundation 2020 National Hospital data, that the cost is about 2,800 now per patient day. Then you can reference the number to dollars and decide which service should be covered to support the patient's care delivery and transition to care. Going back to my original example, if you have one patient per week that stays overnight because they did not have a ride, this is about 145,000 in annual waste or equivalent to three EVS workers. By turning the information into action, by creating a story as a hospital leader, could reach out to my foundation, I could collaborate with community or post-acute providers, and I can paint a clear picture for my executive leadership and CFO of what reduction means. I also have justification for why the hospital should just easily cover the ride for the patient home, better yet with a to-go meal and their prescriptions filled. So I ask for our listeners today I could ask this question in a lot of ways, but I'm gonna go with, do you know the top avoidable day reason at your hospital or health system? Yes, no, we do not track avoidable days or does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thank you, Tiffany, very much. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money listener survey later in this broadcast. You're listening to Monitor Money, where the time is now, 17 minutes after the top of the hour, in your time zone. Stand by.
0: What are the consequences for changes to the inpatient-only list? Which COVID-19 waivers will continue to be in effect and what are their regulatory implications? Don't be caught off guard. An essential regulatory update is now available on demand. Your presenter, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, always prescient and admired, discusses crucially important regulatory implications found in the outpatient prospective payment system final rule. Dr. Hirsch also reports on complex compliance issues associated with the No Surprises Act. In addition to previewing the new year, Dr. Hirsch helps put your mind at ease by offering specific steps you can take to strengthen your regulatory compliance and ultimately protect your facility's fiscal integrity in 2023.
1: Now's the time for the results of today's Modern Money Listener Survey. And once again, here is Tiffany
5: Ferguson. Let's take a look at our survey. So what I asked was, do you know your top avoidable day reasons at your hospital or health system? And the majority of people actually were kind of split. So 32% says yes, 44% says no. Um, there's a small percentage that says they're not tracking them and someone does not apply. Uh, feel free and you can reach out to me. I'd love to hear, or you can put in the chat if you're on this morning, um, what are your top reasons that you guys are seeing? That way I can kind of report on that in future segments. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks for your survey,
0: Tiffany Ferguson, very much.
1: Up next, the Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Kate Brantley.
0: The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading, provider-focused electronic healthcare care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide.
1: Here now is Kate Brentley. Good
6: morning, Chuck. When taking an updated look at the Consumer Price Index for the most recent month, October, the price of medical care jumped 5% from the previous year, For now, this is a growth that is comparable to past years. However, with inflation in the rest of the economy growing so rapidly this year, as well as healthcare wages increasing from industry strikes and labor shortages, the possible expiration of COVID subsidies, and a return to normal levels of utilization, the question is not whether healthcare costs will continue to increase going forward, it's by how much. And as listeners of this program may recall, debt from receiving medical care is at an all-time high. An estimated 41% of Americans now have medical debt, with many owing $2,500 or more. Members of Congress and several states are attempting to tackle this, pursuing two different routes so far. The Health Freedom Act, recently introduced in Congress by Representative Roy from Texas, creates so-called health freedom accounts that offer similar benefits to the health savings accounts currently only offered to those with high deductible plans. Both Arizona and New York are also examining how medical debt is treated within their borders. Just this past week, New York's governor signed legislation that prohibits health care providers from placing liens on personal property or garnishing wages to collect on a medical debt. As my colleague Matthew Albright reported recently, Arizona voters have passed the Proposition 209 ballot initiative limiting the interest rates on medical debt and exempting higher values of personal property and assets from debt collection. But some hospitals have begun offering a different approach that may see patients left out of these new protections. Nationwide, reports show that about one in five adults are on some sort of financing plan to pay off a medical or dental bill. Hospitals have traditionally offered no interest payment plans for these bills, but recently several have contracted with financing companies, private lenders, and banks. This type of patient financing is a fast-growing business with profit margins in the field estimated to be almost 30%. Hospitals offering this new financing option state that involving an outside lender is helpful both for the hospital and the patient in keeping track of the bill amount and offering easy payment options, and they claim that it sees increased bill payment rates, which allows the hospital to keep running and providing care. One of the most prominent lenders in the patient financing business declared that his business doesn't buy patient debt from hospitals, doesn't run credit checks to determine interest rates, and doesn't report defaulting patients to credit bureaus. It just helps people pay off their medical bills. But some patients find this new financing option confusing and end up seeing high interest rates that add hundreds of dollars to a bill that they are already struggling to pay. Borrows or miss payments can have their accounts returned to hospitals and additional action against them pursued. And some reports have indicated that bills can be divided into multiple accounts by the lenders, with payments only being applied to one of the accounts, leaving the others in default. Opponents feel that this leaves people uniquely vulnerable to debt that they may not, may not even have control over. There's also a question of whether this would still qualify as medical debt for the new protections passed by states. So, Chuck, as we inch closer to the 2023 legislative session, with healthcare costs rising and the problem of medical debt only growing, some of these alternative solutions emerging might just further, be further complicating the landscape that legislatures are attempting to tackle. Back to you, Trent.
1: Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley. Kate is a legislative affairs analyst for Zealous. As you heard, Clark Anthony asked the question at the top of the broadcast, are Medicare auditors similar to ancient hunting parties roaming the tundra for wild game? Are audits applied equally across all healthcare care providers? Or is there an intelligent design directed by a hidden network of influencers working behind the scenes? Standing by in New York to report a lead story this morning is Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. Good morning. Ed, what is going on?
7: Well, uh, this problem is very complicated, so we're going to start with the exclusions. The exclusions are allowed under the Social Security Act for things like crime, Abusing a patient, fraud, use of controlled substances, things like that. Also, there are a number of permissive exclusions: uh, fraud, you know, obstruction of an investigation, charging too much, uh, working with a suspended license, kickbacks, and so on. Even defaulting on education loans can be uh, grounds for exclusion. Exclusion means you you can't work in any medical facility, you're, you're out for three, five years or more. Uh, looking at the data on uh, how many ex- exclusions there are, how many people are, have been excluded, what what is interesting is that two categories stand out above all the rest. Uh, one is uh, nursing and individually licensed service providers. They're They're much, much greater. If you look at the individually licensed service providers of those the nurses aides take the the lion's share uh, eleven thousand here compared to the next care debt next step down which is only a thousand it's very it's very you know unbalanced for businesses only about four point two percent of the those that are excluded are businesses, only three thousand or so out of seventy six thousand and there are fifty types of businesses involved of those the leader is the DMA area DME uh, companies are are the ones that are excluded the most uh, you can see pharmacies there other businesses are not defined but DMEs are, are the leader uh, here the nursing on the nursing side what's interesting is that of the thirteen thousand nine hundred thirty uh, nurses' services excluded 13,908 are for nurses' aides. So nurses' aides are really the bulk of the of the excluded parties in this uh, area. It 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 may indicate a need for more training. If you look at the overall growth in the number of exclusions, you could see that it started out around 1977, 78. It, it went along for a few years. And then around 1987, it started to jump up a great deal. But in 1993, there was a huge growth, just a boom going all the way up until in 2018, it reached uh, a height of 3,550 people or individuals uh, excluded in one year alone. Now, the... uh, the number after one eight started to drop. But what you can see here is that obviously the number of people excluded doesn't have anything to do really with the amount of fraud or problems occurring. It really just reflects the amount of bureaucratic effort that's uh, focused on doing exclusions. And it's not drawn here, but this chart, whether it goes up or down, correlates very closely with the Uh, Party of the administration that's in the executive. So it goes up under some parties and down under others. So I'm not sure what this really says, except the people that are getting the brunt of this are alone and are at the lower end of the spectrum. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Modern Investigative Reporter Ed Roach. Mr. Roach was calling in from New York. Now it's time for our Monday Q&A, so David, let's take a look at some of the questions that we've been receiving since we have been on
4: the air. Let's see if we can whip through them. First one's for Nicole. Does anyone ever challenge the feds on the proposition that the five conditions are in fact preventable? I suspect that they sometimes may be, uh, and often they're not. That's from Joe.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I consider arguing that a condition is not preventable as maybe a first defense or a first A first argument, but I would rely more on because I think whether something is preventable is definitely kind of arbitrary and not really uh, concrete. So I would definitely rely more on having policies in place that are written down showing how you try to prevent. I think that would be even more
4: important. So we got a question, a really good one. David, does this mean that a surgeon doesn't have to include the anesthesiologist's estimate with their own surgery estimate? And the short answer is that is exactly what it means for now, right? So eventually that will change, but we thought that that was going to happen on January 1st of 2023. Uh, and that can is being kicked down the road. Now, um, Ron asked me a great question. Well, what's the penalty like if you give the bad information? And that is unclear. There is a potential $10,000 civil monetary penalty. The most likely penalty is that the patient would be able to complain that they were overcharged and that they are not responsible for those excess charges, and so they'd be able to use the process. And Chuck, if we have a second, Tiffany hit quite a nerve, Um, so I'll turn it over to her to comment on the uh, many social determinants of health comments and questions.
5: Thank you, everyone, for chiming in, and what it looks like is a lot related to service delays, post-acute, pre-cert, authorizations with insurance, numerous things. So what will happen is the team will go ahead and send need this information, then I'll reply to you guys, and I will make sure to include this um, with some further details and expansion in next week's segment.
4: Thank you so much, Tiffany. Chuck, that's it. I hope everyone gets out to see the occultation of Mars and the meteor shower Wednesday night.
1: Have a great week. Thanks, David, very much. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists today, Kate Brantley, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Tiffany Ferguson, and Edward Roach, who reported our lead story. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to listen to me tomorrow on Talk Ten Tuesday. We're going to have a comprehensive roundup of all the latest coding news. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.